As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to The Audible. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined by Bruce Feldman. We are recording this on Thursday morning. We spent the early part of this week at Big Ten Media Days in Chicago, and we want to share some of our uh, experiences there with you. But first, Bruce, right before we came on the podcast, uh, some news broke about a topic that uh, you and I first really delved into here uh, with Bill Hancock way back on a few days after the semis last year, and that is that they have agreed to change the semifinal dates, move them off New Year's Eve for most of the rest of the contract. Yeah, and for people who don't know, Bill Hancock is the executive director of the playoff. He's really the face of the playoff. You may see, you know, before you saw Jeff Long this year, you'll see uh, Kirby Hocutt, the Texas Tech AD, is kind of the person defending their rankings. But Hancock is the one who most of us interact with on this. I, I mean, my takeaway is common sense and ESPN, which is paying a fortune for the playoff, uh, won out, which is a good thing. I think that's a win-win for the fans. Yeah, I, you know, they tried to, the, the, for whatever reason, they thought they could reinvent New Year's Eve, and it didn't work. <laughs> which sounds so stupid when you say it like <laughs> it that. Didn't, it didn't work, and I think where you have to give them credit is if this were the BCS, in the BCS days, they were just so stubborn that I wouldn't have been surprised if they just kept on keeping on the way it was. And at first it sounded like they might, but I just think, you know, when we had Bill Hancock on our podcast the Monday morning after and he just kept saying one year doesn't make a trend and, and the games were lopsided. He was in spin so mode, too. He was in spin mode, especially when it came to, like, the Rose Bowl rate, right, ratings. And and it just, I don't know, like, it, it should be catering to the fans. Those are the consumers. And... You know, I think a couple of things are worth, you know, reiterating, which were the first year it was a huge deal. Uh, and there were probably stronger ratings teams across the board with those four teams, certainly with Ohio State in the mix. Uh, and that that helped drive it. Obviously, the 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 New Year's Eve thing certainly didn't help. And I don't think the games were as good. I mean, the game I was at with the Orange Bowl wasn't quite as bad as the final score looked like. It was competitive at half. Your game was not good. Uh, and that that fit, certainly didn't help it, right? So common sense did prevail, but 
probably with quite – in fact, I know with quite a bit of pressuring from ESPN, they really wanted to – you know, they showed them the data. They really wanted to make this happen. And what's interesting is, uh, you know, what was considered to be the biggest holdup, the fact that the rose and the sugar are locked into January 1. So the solution they came up with, no, it does not make the playoff games on January 1st every year. But it what it does is it puts it on a Saturday or a holiday every year. And you're going to see some semis played as early at well starting in on 2018 19 well it's 2018 season saturday december 29th the year after that saturday december 28th uh at the end the very last one 2025 is as early as saturday december 27th so you you now you're shifting you're not reinventing new year's eve but you're moving the idea of the biggest games the biggest bowls of the season in the past were always played in january now we're pushing this a little bit further back uh, into December, even pretty close to Christmas. The interesting thing about that is that means, you know, the teams get to the bowl games a week early. So in quite a few of those years, they will be spending Christmas um, at the Beach Bowl or the Fiesta, you know, wherever the, the games are that year. All right, Stu, let's, let's move on from that. That was a yeah, quick news. You're, you're bored by story. that already, I can tell. I am bored by it. It doesn't happen for a couple of years. Um, I'm glad they reconciled it and fixed it. But let's talk. I mean, look, let's talk about some on the field stuff. We, you know, we just got back from Chicago at Big Ten Media Days. I think there is a lot more star power and there's a lot more juice around the Big Ten. And Urban Meyer said, as I don't know if he said it quite like this, but one of the comments he made late in the day on Tuesday was when he first started, you know, going to Big Ten Media Days as the new head coach at Ohio State. He talked about he could feel the lack of respect uh, that the league had nationally and how much it's different now. And part of that is there are a lot more draft picks. A big reason for that is, quite honestly, himself, Urban Meyer. He didn't say this directly like that, but that's a fact. Uh, And obviously, Jim Harbaugh coming into the league. Because Michigan State has, has been terrific the last few years, but I think they've been able to sustain. But I think it's really those two coaches and the star power that they bring and it is, you know, they're recruiting, you know, they're beating everybody, you know, not consistently, but they're they're winning a lot of big recruiting battles. The talent level is up. And I think there's a lot of reason for people to be excited there you know, across the board. And he was kind of reflecting that. Well, it started with the star attraction was Harbaugh. And it's the second straight year that I basically just camped out around his. Uh, well, we should mention that they changed the format. Not to my liking and not to many media members' liking. It used to be for years in the Big Ten media days, at some point after the press conferences, the coaches would just and players would sit at a table for an hour, and you could come and go as you pleased. And last year I sat right next to him at his table for an hour. Uh, for whatever reason, the people at the Big Ten decided to do away with those. And so they just had you know yet another podium setting with TV cameras, and you're being shoved out of that. So I would say I stood around his podium for an hour, and I don't know. Do you think Harbaugh fatigue is starting to set in? I mean, he was, he was definitely amusing, uh, talking about his rap video, uh, saying all the cool people like it, uh, you know, various other, you know, saying he won't apologize for the tweets to, uh, you know, ripping some of those coaches who dared to question satellite camps. I wrote an article about it, not many people read it, and I wonder if people are just kind of done with summer of gym and kind of into all right prove it on the field mode 
I think they are. Certainly the rivals are. I, I think that there's genuine excitement for where Michigan football is going among Michigan fans. But I think that, you know, we've had so much of this run up with, with, with Harbaugh. And I do think he's he's a charismatic figure, you know, whether he's wearing a hat with a suit or whatever. You know, he he was in really good spirits, I thought, the other day. And, you know, uh, look, I, I think that he knows exactly what he's doing. I was very impressed, by the way, by the three players they brought. They're not only good players. Uh, Jordan Lewis is the great cornerback. They have uh, Amara Darbo, the big receiver, and then Jake Butt, the tight end. But I thought they were very engaging. Not only are they really good players, I thought they were really good representatives of Michigan. And, you know, it's funny. When you get the reaction of some of these guys, I remember, you know, Lewis is, like I said, he was a very good interview. But, you know, we are talking about what makes – what makes Jim Harbaugh so unique? And he was like, you know, people call it crazy. We call it genius. <laughs> there's a method to his madness, and obviously it works. And I think that there's a method to his madness, and the players kind of get that now. Um, is it really is a fascinating concept on why this guy is such a good coach and all this seemingly nutty stuff that he does – uh, which to me always felt like kind of fly by the seat of his pants. The fact that all these guys think there is a method to it, all of it, whether there is or not, the fact that they believe that there is, I think only makes his ability to reach them and motivate them probably that, that much stronger. As terms of Ohio state, um, you know, probably attracted even more attention than Michigan. Uh, you know, I spent quite a bit of time around JT Barrett and, this is my observation about JT Barrett. He's a very thoughtful guy. Uh, he's a very introspective guy. And so, and I said this to a couple of the other writers, it was kind of a downer a little bit at times when he talks about his experience of being the Ohio State quarterback and the responsibility that comes with it. I think the pressure is so much that he doesn't necessarily get to enjoy it very much. You know, he talked about, well, first he talked about being a, you know, a freshman, just getting there and kind of hate you use the word hate hating Ohio State hating going to practice because it was so hard I I don't think that's uncommon but then the year that he got thrust into action two years ago when Braxton Miller got hurt he said basically every game it was just kind of relief like oh I was really nervous about that one I'm glad we pulled it out then last year I think you know he's coming off the injury this was the first time I really heard him and Urban Meyer talk about one of the big reasons why Cardell Jones won the job coming into last year, which a lot of people, I remember Joel Klatt vigorously (laughs) disagreed with that decision, and then it seemed to play out that way. But Barrett had a really bad fall camp. He wasn't himself. He said he was thinking too much. So he he said Cardell deserved the job. But then the pressure that surrounded that Ohio State team last year, that they were going to be one of the greatest of all time, and then they would struggle to beat Western Michigan, uh, you know, they – they describe he described the players as you know they would win games and then in the locker room after it would feel like they lost and then they did lose and it kind of derailed their goals so you know well, how a- much does this as you know i was around urban as well on tuesday especially but when you talk about jt barrett and I, the motto for ohio state seems to underscore this which is the new motto is embrace the grind and i'm not saying that he's not he's not doing that but you know, it there's it feels like, and this this was manifest more in Urban Meyer, you know, six or seven years ago. In that this was the 2009 season when Tebow was there, and they were trying to get the second straight national title, and Meyer was clearly not enjoying the process; it was wearing on him. Uh, 
to some degree, it felt like, you know, and this is, this is all over for JT Barrett. There was a lot of it. It wasn't just like a lot, it was before and everything else. And I think there's, there's challenges to, and sometimes I think we in the media and certainly fans probably, whether you don't care or you just, you kind of overlook it is they are, you know, 18, 19 year old guys who are adjusting to college. A lot of them are away from home. It's not to say that these are excuses, but it is a big adjustment to go into this and go, okay, um, dealing with the pressure and, you know, I guess sometimes that's what it takes to be great. But, you know, when you hear somebody verbalize it, like he did, I think it's a good reminder of, you know, of, of sometimes it, it can feel like a job and even more than, more than a job. The, it ended up, you know, I remember being there last spring, the spring going of 15. And that was one of urban Meyer's biggest concerns. He, I mean, he would specifically reference the 2009 Florida team. And when Tebow came back, and I remember well, you know, it was exactly the way these guys described last year. They nothing was ever good enough. Now that was the season that where he had all the health problems and and briefly retired. Um, I think that that the, what, what the players are describing feels very similar to that. I think, and I asked Urban Meyer about it after we heard from JT Barrett, uh, and you know, he said we did everything possible to guard against the. I got the sense that he was saying it didn't feel that way to him. Maybe it felt that way to some of the players. I think for him personally, he didn't take it quite as hard. He didn't. The pressure didn't get to him as much as it did um, that year at Florida. Um, and you did this. You did this JT Barrett story, and you spent a little bit of time with him. Do you feel like you know a year or two from now, you know, he's going to have some? I don't say some regrets, but kind of a negative taste in his mouth about. Yeah, he was part of a national title team, but some of the college experience that it was such a such a felt like such an uphill climb that he wasn't you know enjoying it to the level that maybe some other guys do. I mean, it's been a very roller coaster career for him. Even when he got the starting job back last year, a week later he gets um, su- you know he gets suspended for uh, driving under the influence. DUI, so, yeah, yeah. Um, it wasn't technically it wasn't called that. It was a uh, OVI. Just operating a vehicle under the influence. Maybe it's the state of Ohio. Anyway, I think it'll depend on what happens this year. I think this could be a huge year for him because now, first of all, he's the guy. He's no longer the guy that filled in for Braxton Miller or the guy that's, you know, going back and forth with uh, Cardell Jones. There's so much inexperience on that offense. I mean, they, the, the players there, you know, we talked to Pat Elfline, the center, you know, they're very high on Mike Weber, the registered freshman running back. They're very high on uh, Noah Brown, a receiver who probably would have played a lot last year but got hurt. But at the end of the day, these guys are young and inexperienced, and JT Barrett is the grizzled veteran. And, uh, you know, I, I, in writing the story, I went back and, and looked up his stats from 2014, and, man, it's, it's unbelievable. Like, you forget about it now, but despite that awful Virginia Tech game at the beginning of the year and despite obviously not playing in the postseason – he had almost 4,000 total yards and 45 touchdowns. And I he was a Heisman finalist. He was so. a Heisman. Well, he wasn't a finalist, but he was top yeah, five. Yeah, fifth, right, yeah. I mean, couldn't you see a scenario this year where he carries the load, runs, you know, 15, 20 times every game, uh, you know, basically is the Ohio State offense? We'll see. I don't think they want him to do that much. You know, I don't I, think I they want him to, but, I mean, I remember in 2013, they, you know, when it was clear that uh, – um, that they weren't going to have much of a path. They just rode Braxton Miller and Carlos Hyde the whole season. He's, that's what Urban Meyer does. He find, Whatever was working, he sticks with that, and he rides it. And 
although last year they didn't do that with Ezekiel Elliott against Michigan State. What I'm saying is, you know, many of us think Ohio State might take a step back this year, but you know what? They're still being picked to win the Big Ten by a lot of people. If that were to happen, if they were to, uh, you know, let's say they lose to Oklahoma that third week and people start to, uh, you know, let's say they lose that game and they lose, I don't know, at Penn State, but then they turn it around and he has a huge year and they beat Michigan at the end of the year and they win the division. I would think that'd be just as satisfying, if not more so, to JT Barrett than, you know, the the bittersweet 2014 season. Well, I hope so. I mean, from how, you know, from what you described, you know, you don't want somebody to feel like, you know, it's so taxing and it's, you know, they come away feeling, I don't say that, you know, just you, you want to see people like love what they're doing. And, and a part of that, and I guess that goes back to his embrace the grind motto and we'll see how it plays out. Uh, one other thing before we get to that, cause I know we want to talk about Penn state. Uh, and also I think we should talk about Iowa, but I want to just hit on one other thing. And this is probably very inside baseball for on the reporting side of it. But from an element of the embrace the grind as it relates to the even the Ohio State beat and how the media handles it, it's pretty fascinating to observe. We had this one hour window into Urban Meyer where he's at a smaller podium and there are just, you know, multiple reporters from multiple uh, newspapers and websites you know, just kind of have to wait, wait everything out. And they are firing questions at him. Some are hypothetical. Some aren't even questions. They're just kind of observations. And he engages all of it, um, which I thought about. I was like, you know, I could never see Nick Saban, you know, kind of dealing with this. You know, I don't think he goes the hypothetical route. A lot of coaches don't. But I think because Urban Meyer is so big on self-scout and so uh, open to kind of in his head engaging some of this stuff, you know, it, it's kind of interesting to see how it comes out. And I think that element is it, you know, I, I, it's a unique beat to see in terms of they are trying to cover every possible angle of things because there is there seems to be so much detail on it. I wonder when you're talking about like the JT Barrett aspect of it, um, it just feels and I'm not saying that Alabama doesn't have this or some other schools don't have the, you know, the intense kind of you know, cloud hanging around it, but it just, it just feels like it is, it is, it's like tiring to be around like that setting. I thought, Oh, for sure. And I don't, I want to be clear. I don't fault the beat writers for doing their job. No, I don't. They they have basically, they, they have a, a, a beast to feed that is much, I mean, this, these are no longer the days of, you know, all right, what, what's, you know, what's your newspaper assignment today? You've got to file a 15 inch feature and a short notebook. I mean, they, you know, those, especially those guys at Cleveland.com, who I really respect, they, I mean, they are putting up new stuff on their website multiple times a day, every day, even in the dead of the off season, whether it's about recruiting, whether it's about, um, you know, a comment that somebody made at some, somewhere. Uh, and so, yeah, they have to fill their notebooks for like weeks worth of stuff. And I experienced that at the JT Barrett uh, podium. It was frustrating because, you know, it was one of those things where a bunch of us wrote basically the same story. Myself, Nicole Auerbach, USA Today, Dennis Dodd. And so you're trying to get him to be introspective and talk about his career. And I was, as I was transcribing the tape actually on the airplane, on the flight back, I noticed, you know, every time he said, almost every time he said something insightful like that, the next question would be, can you talk about the receivers or, uh, you know, the, how are the young guys coming along? They have to do their job. They have to ask those questions. I mean, it, it almost means that, 
you know, it would, it would really benefit everybody, to be frank, if the Big Ten and all these conferences set it up so that you know, the beat writers got their time with them and the regional and national writers got their time with them because, frankly, they're interested in uh, completely different things. But to your point, yeah, it's an incredibly uh, – I mean, Ohio State football is a, basically a pro team. You know, yes, there's the Bengals and there's the Browns, but I would argue that Ohio State is – I mean, certainly the, 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 all, the whole story in Columbus. And, frankly, if you were to – I think if, if you were to do a poll of the state, there's probably more people who take – Ohio State football, how do I put that? The Ohio State football is their biggest football passion, more so than the Browns or Bengals. Um, and, but, you know, what? it's not just Ohio State. You know, I tried to go to Kirk Ferentz's podium for a while, and there's a whole bunch of people that cover Iowa who wanted to know about how this offensive line position is shaking up and this kind of that, which, you know, for isn't of much use for us. Uh Pat Fitzgerald, and maybe that was because it was in Chicago, had a throng of people around him for the entire hour. You know, it's it's uh, it's the nature of the beast. College football How, gets uh, more coverage than than ever. I had a I had a funny thought, like you know you're sitting around waiting to answer ask your question. I had this you know really childish thought that came into my head as I'm waiting for Kirk Ferentz, and I was like, I would love to see the reaction if I had just kind of gone with. Uh, Coach Stuart Mandel once called you one of the most overrated, overpaid coaches in college football. Do you feel vindicated after you know making making to the Big Ten title game last year? So and just see what he was well, First of all, he is so mild mannered and and frankly bland that I don't think he would have given you a juicy answer to that. But I do remember at the time, and and frankly, this is why I stopped doing those worst coaches lists originally. Did it? Brought it back for one year. Didn't do it again is I hate that it becomes a story unto itself where they then go and ask the coach about how he feels about being named to that and whatnot. And that did happen with him. So I'm going to be honest. I was looking for an opportunity to just go up to him, introduce myself, you know, like kind of fess up to it and, and say, you know, thanks for proving me wrong. But you couldn't get anywhere near any of these guys. There was always a throng of 20 people around them, and I wasn't going to do it, you know, in a group setting like that. So... Uh, maybe maybe next time I see him. I wish we had. Let me just ask. Let's you talk quick. Iowa while we're in this. In this yeah, world. let's talk Iowa. Should, so okay, but I can't say that I came away with any big ins. Oh, you have more insight about Iowa because I had to leave a little bit early and I missed uh, Desmond King and C.J. Bathurst, but you were there. Yeah. Before we get to those guys, by the way, um, they got the some reporters asked uh, Ferentz early in the day about Josie Jewell. He's their linebacker. He's a good player. Uh, and they were saying, is he the first non-senior you've ever brought to media days? And he said, yes. And he is the first underclassman captain he's ever had. You know, he just said great leader. And I was like, wow. I mean, this guy must, you know, that's quite a uh, testament that a guy guy is a great player. I mean, I remember we had on Daniel Jeremiah during the late in the season last year and asked him for his, you know, NFL scouting takes on some of these teams. And he flat out said, Iowa didn't, didn't really have anybody that they were, you know, they was on the NFL radar. Um, I would imagine Josie Jewell will be one of those guys who's labeled as a, you know, uh, not athletic enough, blah, blah, blah. But when you when I watched their games last year, he was the one. Uh, well, there's Desmond King, obviously. But in terms of the front seven, he was the one guy uh, that really stood out. I as we the day we're recording this, uh, our friend Bill Connolly, uh, who does all the advanced metrics, put out his Big Ten preview and he is just getting the wrath of the Iowa fans that I know so well because he has them based purely on the analytics 
projected as the eighth best team in the Big Ten this year. Last year, I remember in his final rankings, they were in the 40s. I Iowa was never as – I think any objective person would say Iowa was never as good as whatever they got up to, number three in the country. But I, I, But nor do I think they were anywhere near the 40s. And I'm starting to come around to the fact that while they probably aren't going to go undefeated again, I have a hard time picking anybody other than them to win that division. Yeah, look, at their, their, I think they're going to be a double-digit win team. You know, I, like you said, I did spend some time with some of their players, C.J. Beathard, who for some reason I never realized looks a lot like Rob Stone's buddy Alexi Lawless, at least with the goatee, kind of I thought he did. Uh, one cool thing about C.J. Beathard, I was talking to other, another coach in the league who said, you know, question mark was a quarterback. They have a talented kid who he, who he likes, but he said, I don't know, you know, how he, what kind of presence he has out on the field. If it's, if it's all there, he goes, you know, who had that? You feel CJ Beathard. He has that presence. And I was like, well, that's, that's a pretty, <laughs> that's a pretty good statement to make about another guy. Cause we weren't even talking CJ Beathard. And he just kind of talked about that. Uh, you know, obviously they should have another good offensive line. Uh, Desmond King, who is their all-American cornerback who had a fantastic year and opted to come back. Very cool little story. I asked him, again, this is back to my, you know, Jordan Lewis, who, you know, the guy from Michigan, we were talking about them, both Detroit kids. I said, how well do you know him? He said, I've known him since I was a little kid. We were on the same peewee football team, the West Side Cubs. I said, wow, you guys must have never lost. He goes, no, we did. But he mentioned that also on that team was Malik McDowell, so you have arguably the two best cornerbacks in college football, and maybe the you know maybe one of the best in, interior D linemen all on the same Pee Wee team. And he said there was an Ohio State player on there, and I forgot who the the Mac player. He said I think was from Akron or Toledo was also on that same team. I was like, wow, that's a lot of talent. So all right, uh, one thing I want to ask you about. Uh, not going anywhere with that, huh? No, <laughs> sorry. One one thing I want to ask two things, but the first one is a bunch of new coaches in that conference this year. Um, Lovey Smith at Illinois, DJ Durkin at Maryland, Chris Ash at Rutgers, and you could even count Tracy Clays, who got the job at Minnesota full-time after last season. Which one do you have the uh, most confidence in? To do what in the first year or to, to be there five years from now? To have the most – to eventually have the most success at that program. The one that's most intriguing to me is Lovey Smith. Uh just because he had, you know, he had a lot of success in the NFL. I know from talking to guys who work with him back in Tennessee twenty years ago, twenty plus years ago, he he's very good when you know he comes across as very genuine and sincere. I don't know how good they're going to recruit, but they're in the more favorable side of the conference. I don't want to say Illinois has been a sleeping giant for a while, but they've had so much up and down there and so much instability. Uh, the other, you know, I think Chris Ash is a ultimately will be an upgrade over Kyle Flood. I definitely think DJ Durkin is, and DJ Durkin is interesting to me. He was the other one I would, I would put in that category with uh, Lovey Smith because, you know, they're in a pretty fertile recruiting area and you talk to everybody. This guy's pedigree is, you know, he worked for urban Meyer. Uh, he worked for Jim Harbaugh. You know, I, we had talked a lot when I talked to him about, you know, how do you convince guys to not go, to play for Urban Meyer, Jim Harbaugh, or Mark D'Antonio. And his real sell, selling point is going to be, you know, yeah, those are great programs, but there's something special about being part of something where you can be on the ground floor and say, yeah, you turned it. You were a big reason. 
And I, and he was part of that on that Jim Harbaugh staff at Stanford, you know, almost a decade ago where they went from being one of the worst teams in power five football, if not the worst to a powerhouse in four years. And I know a lot of those guys who were part of that turnaround take a lot of pride in that. So we'll see. He's, he's done very well in recruiting so far. We'll see if he can keep, you know, they have a top, you know, they have a, a top three or four defensive end who's already committed there. We'll see if he's able to keep them. They have a really good quarterback committed. Uh, you know, I, I'm fascinated because just the Randy Edsel was just felt like they were spinning their wheels. And I think this is, there's some good energy there. And I think they've upgraded, they're about to upgrade their facility. So, you know, Maryland to me is a little different. So I would say either Maryland or Illinois on that. So I remember when both Chris Ash and DJ Durkin were up there, I was remember thinking, you know, Maryland and Rutgers both really upgraded their even though these guys haven't coached before, I think they I, I just have confidence that they are gonna do bigger things than their predecessors did. But then you think, well, but there's a ceiling to it. You know, what would the circumstances have to be for Maryland and certainly Rutgers to rise up one year and be and win the division? You know, you would have to be better than Ohio State, Michigan, Michigan State, and Penn State. It's so it's such a tall order. But I also don't know that that necessarily has to be the measure of success. You know, I think uh, of that group, I, I like DJ Durkin. I think that he's the right guy for that job. And I do think Maryland, you know, I don't know about Sleeping Giant, but, you know, they've done it before. Ralph Region had three great uh, years there when they were in the ACC. I think uh, uh, I told this to you uh, at well, – did we already say this on the podcast? I remember you and I having a conversation where I said, why couldn't they – do what Mississippi State's done in the SEC West. Um, I think that that's possible for them. I like the Lovey Smith hired Illinois in that he that just programmers need some juice. It's just been so blah for so long. Tim Beckman was a terrible coach, apparently a terrible human being, and a terrible recruiter. And I think Lovey Smith is the opposite of all those things. But I'm always a little skeptical of a guy who's been in the NFL for who's been away from college for that long. He talked about it up on the podium about how much recruiting has changed, uh, although he downplayed it a little bit. Uh, you know, I, I think that's a tough ask. Plus, you know, interesting coordinator hires. Garrick McGee is a really good hire. Uh, he's been an offensive coordinator at a lot of places and, and done a very good job. But Hardy Nickerson has never been a college. He's never had any college coaching experience. And he hired him as his defensive coordinator. That's, that's like, his guy, though. Yeah. They are very tight and. We'll see how it translates. I'm curious. We were, we were talking about Michigan and – I'm sorry. We were talking about Maryland and Rutgers. How – what chance do you give that at some point the Big Ten would go, wow, our divisions are so, so, you know, tilted. And the, right. you know, Maybe we need to break up Ohio State and the two Michigan schools and, and, and reconfigure this one more time. Jim Delaney was asked about that, and he said, you know, I wouldn't say never, but that's not really on our radar. You have to remember – the original Big Ten divisions, that was the that was the uh, way they were designed, the the infamous legends and leaders. I mean that was that was purpose purpo- purposefully drawn up so that Ohio State and Michigan were on opposite sides and that based on history the program's various histories, this would generally be pretty balanced. And everybody hated them, not just because of the names. The names had so much to do with it. The names had a lot to do with them, but also you couldn't remember who was in which side. Uh, because there was no People geographic. Figure that stuff out though over time. If I told you to name the seven, couldn't ACC, get close. Yeah, no, you could. You could. Th- ask th- me those have name. been around for for you know a decade or more. So 
they changed it and they went more to a straight geography. And I think ultimately that's the way to go. Are they unbalanced right could now? Could you do it and yes. could you could you do it a different way though? I mean, all the schools are, with the exception of Rutgers and Maryland, are pretty clustered. You could you could you know you could do the equivalent of Auburn's in the SEC East, even though I believe right. Vanderbilt is west of it. But you know, ultimately, you're talking about should, do they need to split up? I assume you're saying do they need to split up? Ohio State, Michigan, Penn State, Michigan State in some degree. And the thing it's really just get if you stuck Ohio State, and I don't know how you would do it this way, but if you stuck Ohio State into the other division, then it feels like it's way more balanced. But the problem with that, and this was a possibility in the old uh, setup that I believe only lasted three years, and people were not keen on it, they're not going to move the Ohio State Michigan game. It's always going to be the last game of the season. And if they both win their divisions and they turn around and play again the next week, great for TV. Not so great for the teams. Um, the other thing is, you know, he mentioned that these things can be cyclical. The SEC West right now is by far the better division and has been for probably five years. But in the 90s, it was all about the East. It was all about Florida, Tennessee, Georgia to some degree because LSU wasn't very good. Alabama was going in and out of probation, wasn't very good. Um, I can remember a year when Mississippi State played in the SEC title game at like nine and three, or maybe they were ten and two, but against an easy schedule. Okay, Stu. So these things me, tend to go in cycles. Osborne's coming back to Nebraska to get it cranked up again. <laughs> then we're all good. Okay, Bruce, we're going to get back to the podcast in a second, but first, we're excited to say that Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans proudly supports the Audible. Rocket Mortgage brings the mortgage approval process into the 21st century, which I have to say is good because the last time I went through the mortgage approval process, it was infuriating. It is fast, powerful, and completely online. Rocket Mortgage has taken all of the complicated, time-consuming parts of applying for a mortgage out of, the equi- out of the equation. Hate searching through stacks of old files and paperwork? With Rocket Mortgage, you can easily share your bank statements and pay stubs at the touch of a button helping you get approved in minutes for a custom mortgage solution that's been tailored to your unique financial situation. And even better, with Rocket Mortgage, you can do all of this on your phone or tablet. It's a quick online process that you can manage from the convenience of your couch. So if you're looking to refinance your mortgage or buy a home, check out Rocket Mortgage today at quickenloans.com backslash audible. I love that they proudly support the audible. Yes. I mean, it's, it's a new direction for you because they always have you going with the, uh, it's, 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 what is it, flowers or mattresses. I mean, this is a much more, much more, um, I think it's something non sensual, Stu Mandel, for, those, <laughs> for, for, for the audible listener. Well, you know, just to be clear, we still want you to buy mattresses and flowers, but you should also go to quickenloans.com slash audible. Because we all know that mortgages and mortgage refinancing comes up quite regularly for many people. We need to hit on a couple quick news items that came out of Big Ten Media Days. First of all, Jim Delaney. Jim Delaney, to be clear, did not step up to the podium and announce he was retiring. It was kind of interesting to watch how that story came about. Our friend Dennis Dodd asked him if he thought he'd still be around in six years when the new TV deals expire. And he basically said... You know, probably not. Uh, that's you know, I'm 68. I assume I, I won't be around then. Uh, that becomes a news thing. I tweeted, unfortunately, incorrectly, and I hate that this happened. That his contract. I knew. I remember that he got a contract extension. I looked up the date. It was 2018. 
I said, this is the logical date that he would retire at because by then he will have launched the, um, launched the, you know, new TV deals been, been, that will have been up and running for a year. And then Nicole Auerbach reports, uh, something that directly contradicts that, which is that he's a source says he's planning to go till 2020 and that is when his contract ends. So it must've gotten silently extended at some point. I actually still believe he won't make it till 2020, but now there's a date out there. He's, you know, saying the end is near and that's, that's, you know, revving up a lot of talk about, you know, the legacy, his legacy. And my gosh, you know, when this guy does retire, although he's been very divisive at times, I know there's a lot of people out there, fans out there who, uh, think he's whatever arrogant, uh, you know, wields too much power, but it's hard to argue at the end of the day with a legacy that includes adding Penn state, which basically was, you know, so unthinkable that it was so revolutionary, if you will, that a Midwest conference would add an Eastern team, uh, and it set in motion all of the realignment that followed. The Big Ten Network, again, nobody had tried anything like that. People laughed at it. It's turned out to be a huge success. The other conferences have copied it. And then the other thing I've been telling people, and I don't think people understand, as much as he gets flack for during the BCS, he was always seen as the guy holding it up from going to the playoff. The BCS originally doesn't ne- never happens if without, obviously, the Big Ten, Pac-10, and Rose Bowl getting on board. If it were up to the Rose Bowl and the Pac-10, that game would have gone on exactly the way it was played for the rest of time. They didn't care about a national championship. It was Delaney who convinced them, we need to do this. We need to have a national championship game, even if that means Miami and Nebraska are going to play in the Rose Bowl one year. Hey, one other thing while we're talking about new stuff. Uh, early, on Tuesday morning there, it created a little bit of buzz, was the negative recruiting story that had come where a reporter had asked first Mark D'Antonio at Michigan State uh, and then later Urban Meyer from Ohio State about a story that had appeared in the Reading Eagle about a month earlier. Or as the reporter referred to it, the Reading Eagle. Yeah, okay. Sounds Um, like a high school mascot. Yeah, (laughs) it does. Uh, So so that uh, that James Franklin at Penn State had made some allegations of negative recruiting amongst by those schools. And Mark D'Antonio's answer was more, that's not our MO, that's not how we do business. Urban Meyer was, this is the first I've heard of it, absolutely not, and I will take that up with Coach Franklin. At which point, as soon as I walked out of the room, I was like, I'm going to call James Franklin and see what he says about this. And James Franklin was a little caught off guard that this story had become a story and he's told me, you know, all I've ever said was that every kid we're recruiting is also being recruited by Michigan, Michigan State, Ohio State, and Notre Dame, and they don't have the same challenges we have now. He goes, then in a separate quote, I mentioned that right now we are dealing with negative recruiting and the two separate quotes over a 35-minute interview, and he said, I never said that any of those schools are the ones doing it, doing the negative recruiting against us. They're not. It is one particular school, but I did not name who that was. Uh, you know, afterwards, and then I tweeted that out, and the story came out uh, later in the day. Urban Meyer was asked about it, and he said, "No, I read the story, and basically, we're all good." Now, I saw subsequently, I guess the the writer of the original story, and I'm actually surprised that this did not get more attention a month ago, when because there's so many bloggers and so many people who cover the Big Ten, and certainly Penn State, that it didn't just come to the light sooner um, that this person, this writer, had even written this, but he said that. You know, he took it that Franklin was implying that these schools had been the ones negative recruiting. So that was the 
the kind of I don't know if we call it the non-story, but it was it was definitely some heat Tuesday morning uh, around the Big Ten because of it. Well, again, another unfortunate media moment, in my opinion. I, I think he took some quotes and strung them together, and um, and then the reporter in the room who asked the questions asked them in a way that made it seem like if you're Urban Meyer and you're standing up there and you get this question about accusations of dirty recruiting and you've never seen this article. I mean, I don't know what's going through your head. Maybe you think that James Franklin went public and said Ohio State is is negatively recruiting against us, which would be pretty inflammatory. It wasn't like that at all. Um, it I was thought, also said in the big in the big room. This wasn't like off to the yeah, side. It was not being televised on ESPN or ESPNU or something at that time, so people watching at home are seeing it. I didn't get the sense from reading that interview that Franklin was offended by it, even or you know shocked by it. He's just stating that's how it is. Because, frankly, that's how it is all over the country. Everybody negatively recruits against everybody else. In this case, though, it involves – well, we've, we've left out one element of this. Sandy Barber, the AD, held a little gathering. You know, they, She was around and they, the reporters – and I got the sense that this was more her pet cause, that she's really irked about it and she wants to let it be known. And she went a little bit further and said that, you know – she kind of categorizes negative recruiting that there's two different types, and then this is the type where people are just flat out lying and making stuff up, and that you know that's uh, really set her off. Um, what she's saying basically is, with the new wave, she said with the new wave of Sandusky stories, right, that Shiano might have known of something, or Tom Bradley might have known something, that other recruiters are telling them Penn State's going to go back on probation. And that's just not going to happen. <laughs> We've talked about this in the past. The NCAA, that thing backfired on them so much that I don't know what's going to come out, but it, they're not going to go back down that road. But ultimately, uh, all is fair in love and recruiting, and I would like to think most kids are smart enough and their families are smart enough to find out from Penn State first if there's any truth to that. All right. Well, Let's move on. We haven't gotten to the mailbag in a little while. We have not gotten to the mailbag in so long that when I went to pick out the questions, many of them, unfortunately, had already become pretty dated. So we apologize that some of them I think we definitely would have um, gone to earlier. Um, this one is a question that involved, from Quincy Miller, and it involves one of your favorite guys in college football. Ready? Yeah. Who is it? I haven't, I, by the way, I haven't seen it. I know. So Often stupid. this ends up with me surprising you. Hey, Stu and Bruce, I have a question related to Stu's GM theory of college coaches. And that's my theory that um, there should, that every college team should have a GM who handles all the recruiting, structuring, organizational stuff, and then an on-field coach. I'm a Texas fan, and tell me if something like this would be crazy if Charlie Strong didn't work out. What about hiring someone like an Ed Ogeron, who's a terrific motivator, gladhander, and recruiter, and putting him in charge of only those things? Then you hire whoever the two hottest coordinators are, pay them a ridiculous amount of money, and give them complete control over their side of the ball. Obviously, you'd have to worry about the head coach's ego, but if he's winning, he'll have plenty of money and glory to soothe his feelings. So, it's, you know, it's an interesting theory. It's not unlike, you know, there are some coaches who, who, you know, they do. Gary Patterson does everything. He's like the defensive coordinator, and he's, you know, he's the face of the program. Some other guys are. You know, not not very involved in recruiting, quite honestly. And I think Steve Spurrier is probably one of those guys. Um, I don't know about about Ed Ogeron being the face of Texas football, though. I think if you told me LSU at some point, I could totally see that. 
<laughs> I mean, he lives it and breathes it. Texas is a different dynamic. I'm not saying he doesn't know a lot of the Texas high school coaches, but because I know he does, but I just don't think it's exactly the fit I would see for that. Yeah, it's probably not the best specific example, but that's the team he roots for. In fact, he went on to use the example of one former Texas player, Rod Babers, mm-hmm. said he never once saw Mac Brown drop a play on a chalkboard that he delegated almost everything. Meanwhile, Strong seems to want to handle everything himself. I think we've actually seen kind of an uptick in in the opposite of Mac Brown and coaches who are getting these jobs after being coordinators and don't want to surrender control over whatever side of the ball they came up through. Then they get into the job and they find out pretty quickly that there's just so much other stuff. It's hard to do that. But, you know, Mark Rick. Well, there aren't. Mark Rick. Yeah, there just, aren't. I- no, I was just going to say, Mark Richt gave up play calling at Georgia, and now he's back at Miami, and he's taking it back because he felt like he really missed that, and that may have impacted how things went toward the end of his tenure uh, at Georgia. And, you know, there's any number of other examples out there as well. I mean, that, that Leach tree is the one big example where you can see, like, those guys are still, like, Leach is his own offensive coordinator for the most part. I mean, Cliff Kingsbury, who's a Leach protege, now he has Eric Morris, who has the title, but Cliff is heavily involved in it. Dana Holgerson is heavily involved in it at West Virginia. I mean, all those guys are, you know, in this stage, it's pretty rare to see it, you know, how, how involved they are for, as head coaches. All right, Rob Daniels says, Stu and Bruce, if he can't parlay the interim Baylor gig into a full-time situation, what are the odds Jim Grobe can use this opportunity to get back in the head coaching game on a full basis in 2017, full-time basis in 2017, what's the profile of a school that he would fit? That's an interesting, you know, you know, dynamic we got here with Jim Grove. Now I'll say Jim Grove is it will be 65 around signing day next year, and I don't know how many schools would want to go that route of hiring a guy. I think there's a big difference between 65 and 55, and even 60. Yeah, uh, there's definitely like a undercurrent of ageism to cut to the college coaching hiring i feel like once guys get up into their late 50s early 60s even if they're pretty accomplished um you know like philip fulmer had a great career but when he got let go at tennessee he never really got a sniff because people felt like if you got a choice between hiring somebody like that or going out and hiring the next young coach who's going to you know, connect with recruits and re-energize the program, they tend to want to go in that direction. Yeah, let's say this. Uh, Jim Grove is a is a West Virginia guy. I think he's actually from pretty close to where Marshall's from. Doc Holliday's won a bunch. Somehow, if Doc Holliday gets another job, would Jim Grove be a good fit there? Yeah, I could definitely see it. But would Jim Grove at 65 want to go back to a non-Power 5 school? You make an interesting point there because I feel like Okay, let's take the Mac as an example. The, the, the typical hiring model at most of those schools, because they can't pay a lot of money, is they go out and get somebody who's relatively inexperienced. And if that guy has success, after two or three years, he moves up to another job. I would, you know, any number of examples there. Matt Campbell going from Toledo to Iowa State um, this past offseason, I think we agree. P.J. Fleck will probably move up at some point. Uh, Dino Baber, Dino Baber, like not, five not straight, young, but yes, yeah, like five straight Bowling Green coaches. Um, but then there's the one exception in that conference, Ohio. Frank Solich has been there since like a year after he got let go at Nebraska, and you know Ohio has never 
pulled a, a Boise or anything to that extent, but they've been consistently a bowl team since he got there. And so that that so you make an interesting point. If whatever MAC team like Western Michigan loses their hot young coach this year, would it make sense to bring in a Jim Grobe who will actually be there for a while? It's a thought. I mean, you got to determine how much energy he has, how much he really wants the job, and how much he wants to work in that environment. It's hard to say on the specifics, quite honestly. Yeah. This next question, I'm going to ask it, and then I'm going to answer it myself if that's okay. Okay. It's a little history lesson from Jason Higgins in Seattle. Hey, Stu and Bruce, love the pod. When one of you guys mentioned South Carolina as a program that could possibly really hit the skids, it got me thinking back to the original realignment of the 90s when Arkansas and South Carolina went to the SEC and Florida State went to the ACC. Considering the Seminoles were on a run of five consecutive top four seasons when they joined the ACC in 92, it seems surprising today that the SEC chose to take South Carolina, who had been a pretty average team. Can you recall the reasons why the SEC chose the Gamecocks? Well, it's actually the fact that that Florida State chose the ACC over the SEC. Bobby Bowden, I mean, they had had an invite to the SEC, and Bobby Bowden... um, you know, as the story has been told many over the years, decided correctly that he would have a better path to the national championship in the ACC than the SEC. And that certainly proved true. There were many years there where Florida State would just, you know, basically you'd go into the season knowing they were going to easily win, you know, nine of their 11 games and then would come down to have the Miami and the Florida games. Um, you know, that, that definitely proved correct. I don't actually know why South Carolina in particular. I, I know Arkansas, the story there a little bit better. They're, you know, the SW, the Southwest Conference was starting to crumble at that point. I mean, it would be a few years before the full uh, collapse and them merging with the Big Eight. But, you know, there it was very unstable. Everybody was cheating. Or that's why Arkansas got out when it did. I don't – somebody will have to write in maybe with a – from South Carolina with a better understanding of how that happened, but it definitely elevated that program quite a bit in terms of its profile. It didn't have a lot of success in the SEC until Spurrier, but uh, you know that that was a huge boost to that program. Can we do a quick trivia question since you throw these emails at me and I don't see them, and I'm going to throw something at you, and I want to hear your answer? Okay. Uh, from the time Florida State joined – uh, joined the ACC. How many conference games did they lose in their first nine years? I know the answer. Two. Do you go on Wikipedia? All no, already? I just I lived through it. I remember it. I remember how staggering that was. So it was ninety what ninety two to two thousand. I mean, I think yeah, I can even tell you which two they were. It was so rare. The ninety five Virginia. Virginia. It was like a Thursday night yeah. game. They were number one in the country. That was Mike Grow as the quarterback. I remember being in a bar in Hartford for this. Okay, that was a detail I would not have remembered. I mean, certainly yeah. it was at least one, if not two, uh, barbers, right? Yeah, Ronde and Tiki. Yeah. yeah, but it was Mike Grow as the quarterback, and I remember it was like a goal line, last goal line play. And then when Chris Winky was there. They one of those seasons where they they made the national championship game, but they along the way they lost. A, they had a bizarre loss to NC State. Now I want to that say, wasn't even close. Apparently they lost twenty four to seven. I, I oh you I'm looked lying. it up. I don't remember that. Yeah, I looked it up. I have no I have no recollection of that. I game. remember Chris Wenke crying afterward. Uh, I remember well that would have been Tory Holt would have been on that NC State team. 
It was. It probably wasn't a bad NC State team. They were a seven and five NC State team okay. under Mike O'Kane. There you go. All right, far just, down the rabbit hole. Next question, Stu. That was just people who didn't live through it. I can't even begin to describe how much they dominated that conference for the first eight years. It wasn't. They were rarely even tested. Do you remember? We'll go on to the next one. But do you remember when? Uh, this would have been '97 where FSU played North Carolina. Mac Brown. It was the best North Carolina team in ages. They were. I want to say 9-0, and 10-0, something around then. It was this very highly anticipated game. And Florida State beat the snot out of them. Mm. I do. Um, kind of. Last one. Oh, shoot. I've lost the person's name. Bruce and Stu. Recently, you had a mailbag question about a team that is currently doing great but that you think may have a few seasons of not doing great, a la Texas. Do you remember that one? Yes. I think you said Oregon was the team that could slide off yes, the map. Yes, I did. I submit that it won't be a team but a whole conference, the SEC. I say they will have a slide because their success over the last decade has been unprecedented. They can only go down. Also, one big reason for the you know recent streak is Bama, and a big reason for Bama's dominance is Nick Saban. When Saban is gone, and I believe that will be in the next couple of years, that will be a big loss for the SEC in general. I mean, he is right. They, there, there's only one direction to go from the run they've been on the last decade or so. But mm-hmm. but would how realistically, given the way they recruit, the money they pour into their programs, how realistic is it that they would actually take a considerable slide back? I just think they're just built and committed to to playing football at the highest level so much that they're not going to slide off and all of a sudden have the run that the ACC had, like you know the previous before Florida State broke through a couple of years ago. I just I just don't see it. Those well, are football schools. They're not basketball schools. By and large, and if Saban falls, you know, leaves, and then it goes back to where Alabama was before, then you know LSU with whoever their coach is, whether it's Les Miles or not, or you know who knows, maybe Brett Bielema gets it going at Arkansas or Tennessee. I, I just don't think that they're going to go back to even what they were, you know, in the '90s when they were good, but not like you said, the SEC West wasn't that strong. I just think that they're. Their, their commitment level has pushed into a different realm now. It's true. And, 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 and also what's changed since the 90s is the um, amount of talent concentrated in the southeast just continues to grow, uh, just both because of the interest in there, uh, the proliferation of seven-on-seven culture there, and just basic demographics that the population is shifting in that direction. But I can give you one scenario where they would backslide, and that is – Kind of what happened to them in the 90s, actually. Everybody goes on probation. You know, all these teams get in scandal. Not all of them, but quite a few of the big teams have scandals, go on probation for an extended period, and it just kind of drags down the whole conference. If Saban were to leave Alabama and they were to whiff on his replacement, if Les Miles gets fired and they whiff on his replacement, then to the two, you know, which you would probably argue were the, have been the two... I mean, certainly other teams have won national titles, but over the last 10 years or so, well, going back to Saban, beginning his run at Alabama, Alabama and LSU have kind of been the, the standard bearers. They've, been, they've never really had a backslide. They've been, um, you know, contending for titles almost every year. You know, if those two programs took a big step back, I definitely think they would feel it. Yeah, I just think somebody else would 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 benefit from it and get the push, whether it would be, you know, even Auburn or whether it would be Florida or whether it would be Georgia, you know, I, I just think that it would, you know, you push one down, the other one pops up then. Right. 
Well, you can send your mailbag questions to theaudiblepod at gmail.com, which reminds me, Bruce, <laughs> there, was somebody st- there was a little news that went on. Darren Ravel actually tweeted this. that The Miami Dolphins are going to be starting a new, uh, I believe, Periscope, once-a-week Periscope show about the team, and it's called The Audible. Well, how do you feel about that still? I have mixed feelings. On the one hand, I take a little offense to that. On the other hand, we don't really have any ground to stand on because there also there, – there was a podcast, a fantasy football podcast called The Audible, I believe, before ours. So um, it's, just, it's just so darn appropriate a football term to use for a podcast. Well, like, they also – remember when uh, Marco Rubio was running for president? Well, yeah, he tried to use that too. I hope it works better for the Dolphins than it worked for Marco. So. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I, when people said, sent us, you know, tweeted at us about the Dolphins audible, I was like, yeah, we don't, we can't, we can't take issue with that because, you know, and I don't know if, if anybody has it, had it before the fantasy football guys have it for theirs. Uh, um, but, you know, I'm sure they weren't thrilled when we went that direction. So um, we haven't heard from their lawyers, so all good. Um, we have some big plans for the Audible in August. I, I'm very excited. We we are lining up some guests that we're going to be tapping into our fo- friends at Fox quite a bit. But I think you're going to find them some of them to be they're, they're going to be people you haven't heard from yet. And I think you're going to find it very interesting. And of course, we will be um, shifting or, or gearing up more and more for the season. So I'm, I'm pretty fired up. You know, we're both done with media days. We are going to do some travel for camps, but I don't think it'll be too disruptive. So um, I guess that's all a long way of saying if you enjoy the Audible, you should subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. Tell your friends to do so as well. And give us a five-star rating if you got a chance. It really helps get the word out. We'll see you next time. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic.